Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Over these past two weeks, we've been discovering more about the kingdom of God. And today is really exciting, at least for me, because today we get to see how the Old Testament links with the New Testament as far as this idea of the kingdom of God. We're going to discover the kingdom of God is presented in the first half of the Bible just as heavily as it is in the second half. We're going to dive deep into scripture today, not all of it, but some key phrases and key passages to see what it looks like when God becomes king over his people. What does it look like from God's perspective and what does it look like from our perspective? Now, we know that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We have many songs that say those exact phrases. Many parts of our liturgy use that phrase as well. And Christians properly revere and honor the King wherever the King has domain. And guess where that is? The King has domain everywhere, including in our own lives. But would you expect this kind of kingdom the kingdom of Jesus to be laid out in the Old Testament as well? One thing we have to remember is that the stories of Jesus and his first followers, the scriptures that those folks used were what we call the Old Testament. That was simply their Bible. What we call the Old Testament today, that's what they had to work with. So when Jesus is quoting scripture, he's quoting from the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is the Bible that the first century Christians would have used as well. I have to remember that 90% of the New Testament was written, and it's a little bit tough to see here, but you can see these black blobs between the years of about 50 to 70 A.D. This is where 90% of the New Testament books were written. You know, years after Jesus had died, rose again, ascended back to heaven. So until these letters were written... What did the Christians have to look at? Well, their Old Testament scriptures. So the writers, Paul and Peter and all the rest of them, they searched the scriptures to develop their understanding of what Jesus' words meant, especially when he said things like he had come to fulfill the law or the Old Testament prophets. So today you and I are going to discover how the Old Testament was really preparing God's people all the way along to receive the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And friends, today is, is much more than just a history lesson of the people of Israel. There's so much that we can learn from God's will and God's ways from what we call the Old Testament. Today we're going to spend time in just three places. I was told I could only do three because we didn't want a four-hour sermon Although somebody last night was kind of sad that it wasn't going to be a four-hour sermon. And he got brownie points, too. <laughs> so today, we're going to talk about three places. We're going to start with the Exodus story. We're going to move on to the story of King David. And we're going to visit the prophecies of Isaiah. Again, it's not going to be a complete coverage of these topics. But we're going to see where the Old Testament points to the kingdom that we know about today. Of course, you remember the Exodus story, right? The book of Exodus tells us how God's people moved from slavery to freedom. How God's people discovered the glory and the majesty of their God in some very dramatic ways. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as they would have said. 
And in the Exodus story, we find the kingdom of God presented subtly at first, but then later in a bold and very outright way. You see, Exodus tells us the true story of how God used Moses to free his people from Egyptian slavery. We remember the plagues of Egypt. Remember the final plague that did devastation on the firstborn. We call that the first night of the Passover. Remember the thrill of the crossing of the Red Sea, especially if you've seen Charlton Heston as Moses. We all remember that. Perhaps you remember that the Israelites, of course, crossed on dry ground. That in itself is a miracle. That sea had been there for a long, long time. For God to make their ground dry, that's awesome. But then the next part of that miracle is when the Egyptians tried to follow the Israelites across, the Red Sea crashed in on them, and in a blink, the greatest military power on earth at that time totally wiped out. And there on the other side of the Red Sea, you can see Moses' arms outstretched. The people of Israel just watching in amazement as they saw the work of their amazing God happen right before their eyes. After the army of Egypt had been defeated, the people of Israel, they sang a song of praise. Now, their song wasn't exactly like what you and I would sing today in our hymns. This would have been a wild celebration. No conservative Lutheran values at all. They would have been crazy. They were just about ready to be killed by the Egyptian army that was following them. But they came out of it alive. They thought they were going to die, only to see God rescue them in a dramatic and miraculous fashion. In Exodus chapter 15, the people of Israel sang what we call today the Song of Moses. And we would think of it as kind of a strange worship song because it talks about things like the horse and rider being thrown into the sea. It talks about how the story of Israel's freedom from the Egyptians is going to instill fear in all of their future enemies. But I want to call your attention to just one line, the last line in that song, where it says, The Lord shall reign forever and ever. And we would throw amen at the end of that, of course. But you know what? This is the first mention of God's kingdom in the Old Testament. What's that? You don't, you don't see it? Well, well, let me help you out here. Look closely at this one phrase, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. The worship song comes to an end, and that's what they're singing. And that one word, reign, that talks about a king. And that king is going to be a king for these people that's going to last into eternity. And friends, I'm going to tell you that this is the beginning of the kingdom of God theology in our Old Testament. Because only a king can reign. The people of Israel were singing and shouting that God was going to be their king and that he would be their king forever. You and I can't really understand what forever means, but it's a really long time. And that's the way they intended it then. That's the way we intend it today. Forever and ever. It just keeps going. And God received this praise. We know he did because he confirmed this message again when he spoke from Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. Right as God prepares to deliver the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel, here is how he starts it off. Talking to the Israelites, you yourself have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, 
If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you specifically will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you see what the kingdom of God and how it looks like in the Exodus story now? As God is describing to the people, kind of reenacting their rescue, he says, I did that intentionally. I saved you from the Egyptians on purpose so that the nation of Israel would become a kingdom of priests and be a holy nation. You see, it was God's intention way back then that after Israel possessed the promised land of Canaan, which he promised they would get, that the people of Israel would then become a shining example of what it would be to live with their God as their king. And the other nations of the world, well, they would behold Israel's beauty and their holiness. Other nations of the world and other people would travel to Jerusalem so that they could study what it would be, be like to live in godly order and godly peace. This is why God rescued the people of Israel. Because he wanted an entire kingdom of priests dedicated solely to him. Now, many of us maybe aren't familiar with the work of the priesthood. But at its very core, the work of the priest is to represent humanity before God and represent God before the rest of humanity. And one of the greatest gifts of what we call the Reformation today is the rediscovery of that priestly work and that it's not just reserved for a certain few people, but that every believer, each and every believer can be his or her own priest. Martin Luther, Luther had a term for this. Martin Luther said this is the priesthood of all believers of which we are a part. And we can see this now when we look for it in the book of Exodus. The people of Israel are set free so that they can represent God to the rest of the world. Do you see any application for you and I today in our lives? Because through Jesus, God set us free. Not from the slavery of the Egyptians, but from the slavery of sin. So that we can live lives that speak of God's righteousness and God's glory. See, God has rescued us from our sins so that we can live in the beauty of his holiness, that we can be set apart and special and do his work. Friends, from the days of Exodus until today, God desires a community of people that can represent him and his grace and his mercy and his love to all people. You see, the Apostle Paul, he understood this. The Apostle Peter, actually drawing on these very same verses in Exodus, he says this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. You'll get these a little bit later as well. Peter says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I like to use the word marvelous there. That's how I learned that phrase. And then he goes on to say this, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So friends, what was true of Israel at the time of Exodus is also true of us believers today. We have received his mercy in order that we could go and show his goodness 
to a watching world. Friends, our world desperately needs to hear that good news, that the gospel of God, the hope that they can have, is for them as well as for us. So that's the book of Exodus. And again, I'm only going to talk a little bit more about each of these next two sections. We're going to move on to the second great picture of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, and that was the reign of King David. Now, if you know David's life at all, you know it was kind of long and convoluted and complicated. But the main significance of King David, the greatest king in all the history of Israel, is that he was a representation of or a type of the eventual Messiah, Jesus, who would come. You know, Jesus, he was born in the city of David. He was born in Bethlehem. When the crowds received Jesus as he entered Jerusalem, they cried out hosannas to the son of David. Because all Israelites knew the Messiah would be a great king from the line and lineage of David. And while we know that King David was not perfect, he was a forerunner or a type of the Messiah. Listen to the words of a blind man named Bartimaeus. A blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he just shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Where did Bartimaeus get the idea that Jesus was somehow a son of David? Actually, it wasn't his idea at all. We know the Holy Spirit was working through Bartimaeus. And we know that that day all of Israel was expecting the Messiah to be a son of David, of the house and lineage of David. All of Israel expected that the glory and greatness of the earthly kingdom of King David would once again be restored to Israel. Listen to what the people further shouted as Jesus entered Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. There it is again. This idea of a kingdom. This greatness of David's kingdom led the people to look for a day when God himself would be a king among them once again. And of course there's application for us today is that we should not only receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior by what he did for us on that cross and the faith that offers us eternal life because of that knowledge, but we should also receive him as our king. And receiving him as our king means that we are subjects of our king. We talked last week about what that means. Being subject to a king means that we're called to order our lives around the values and the priorities of the king. We are called to represent in our everyday lives the son of David, our king. Are we doing that? Maybe some days we do pretty well. I'm going to turn now to the prophet Isaiah, who spoke many times and in many ways about what the world would be like when the Son of God took his place as the King of God's people in his eternal kingdom. Now, you might look back and think about the Exodus story, and I kind of think of that as kind of a big-screen TV, especially with Moses standing there. Very big and dramatic way. 
You talk about the life of King David, it's a little bit bigger and grander as it talks about the kingdom. It's a, a much larger screen, maybe a movie theater screen. But the prophecies of Isaiah, well, I got to tell you, I don't know if you've been to an IMAX theater, maybe the one down in Apple Valley recently, with a half surround screen, with full surround, digital, Dolby, audio, video, all those things. It's just wonderful. That's what the prophecies of Isaiah are compared to the Exodus story and David. You see, Isaiah prophesied about the coming of the Messiah and also about the rule and reign of the Messiah and what that would look like. A kingdom that would come to earth and last absolutely forever. There's so many different passages in Isaiah that we could talk about declaring the coming kingdom and the greatness of the king, but we've only got time to look at one short passage today. Maybe this is one that you've heard before. Let's try. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I know what you're thinking. Pastor Dan, you're trying to trick us. Because this is a Christmas passage. We don't use this in May. Well, friends, we actually do. <laughs> it's a common verse, yes, quoted at Christmas. But notice right in the middle of this passage, this phrase, the government will be on his shoulders. And that's what we're talking about today. This is a kingdom of God reference. Probably didn't know that before today, did you? But just wait. It gets even better than this. You go on to the next verse in Isaiah. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You look at verse 7, and it certainly enlarges our understanding of Isaiah's prophecy here. Yes, Jesus would be and was born to us as a child. But then, my friends, he grew into a king, the heir to the throne of David. And then Isaiah prophesies that the government of God and the peace of Christ will be without end. It will last forever. Again, looking at the kingdom. Isaiah prophesies that this Jesus, the Messiah, will establish and uphold God's kingdom with justice and righteousness forever. What a wonderful prophecy. What wonderful news for you and I. And the book of Isaiah is just filled with prophecies about the king and his kingdom. You can almost imagine the very first Christians who walked with Jesus and were taught by Jesus. They would hear his teachings about the gospel of the kingdom of God, not really understanding them in the moment. But then they saw the horror of his crucifixion followed closely by the glory of his resurrection. And then they saw the Lord ascend to the Father, right in front of their eyes. And after he ascended, what do you think those first Christians did? We heard a little bit about it today in our reading from Acts. They got to be about the work of God's kingdom. They went to their Bible, their scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, and they there discovered God had been teaching the people Israel about the coming king and his forever kingdom throughout that entire book. Friends, this is not merely a history lesson for us. The Old Testament is still God's word for us today as it points forward to Jesus as the king 
and the kingdom of God. As I said earlier, today's message can't possibly unlock all of the secrets of the kingdom of God that we can find in the Old Testament. But maybe, maybe we've triggered something in your mind. Maybe we've given you just enough to go and discover for yourself the trail of the Old Testament and the kingdom of God. Maybe you can go and do what those first Christians did. We sure have a lot easier time of it today than the first Christians did. We've got the internet, we've got study Bibles, we've got all sorts of things available right at our fingertips to go and search what those passages can mean for you and I. Maybe we can do what those first Christians did. After receiving Jesus as their Lord, they discovered the Lord's fingerprints all over their scriptures. After all, the whole Bible, Old Testament and New, was inspired by one spirit. It's all grafted together. And there's a lot of great stuff we can find about the gospel of the kingdom of God. Not only in the Old, but the New Testament. Such a rich source of growth for every Christian. So today as we close, keep in mind this idea, this theme of the gospel of the kingdom of God includes everything in God's kingdom, and that includes his subjects. That's you and me. And our job is to expand that list of subjects so that includes our friends and neighbors and relatives and those we go to school and work with and just happen upon out in our everyday life. Remember the words we discovered from 1 Peter chapter 2? Where Peter said we are chosen, we are royal, we are a holy, set-aside nation. We are a people for God's own possession. Friends, how are you fulfilling that task today? How is God using you in those great callings in your life, in your place today? How will he do that tomorrow? Join us next week as we conclude our series and find out how we're being called to action in God's kingdom. I pray this message will give you some things to think on over this week. And I look forward to sharing the conclusion with you next week. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.